Welcome to Northgate Bible Chapel Online. Thanks for checking out our podcast, where you can listen to our latest sermons, filled with teaching, encouragement, and hope from God's Word. So whether you're outdoors, in the car, or just poured some coffee, let's dive into today's message. Wow, what a great song. Hard to pull yourself together sometimes after singing some of these songs. I really like the last one too. We sang, Grace was for me the only way my guilt could find relief. My destiny was changed that day. I reached out in belief. I thank the Lord for his grace. Um, you could turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. If you are visiting today, um, you might not be aware, but we are working through the book of Romans as um, our most recent series for this hour. And uh, so the book of Romans is written by the Apostle Paul and is an incredible book. It is... um, it really spans so much, like if you were stranded on an island, the book of Romans has so much of all of scripture really in it. It quotes a lot of the Psalms, it refers to things all the way back in Genesis at the beginning, and um, it's a great book where you see God's timeline um, really coming all together in one book where you realize his plan, and you see that his plan was one of grace, uh, one that he desires to, uh, to reach a lost humanity um, with the gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so this is a great book. We've gotten through a couple chapters already, and I really like how Paul opened the book of Romans, uh, verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, so as much as in me, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel. I can just imagine what a what it was like to meet Paul, a man that was just eager to preach the gospel or the good news is what gospel means. And this was a man that when we look at his life, he wasn't always a fan of Jesus Christ. He was actually uh, a skeptic, right? Or very antagonistic where he was a, um, a very religious Jew who was persecuting the early church. Um, He was trying to have people that believed in Jesus um, be put in jail or even worse um, for their belief in him. And yet we know that Paul um, met the Lord on that road and um, and his life was turned around. Um, Instantly he encountered the Lord Jesus and, um, and he was a changed man. And he went on to preach the good news that he had received um, and was a traveling preacher. And so here we are. Um, He says, I am ready to preach the gospel. And immediately after that, in chapter 1, Paul gets into explaining why the gospel or good news is so desperately needed. Um, We saw in chapter 1 that mankind has suppressed God's truth. Paul used that word. They have suppressed God's truth. And then he went on to say that mankind has exchanged God's truth for a lie as it lists things like homosexuality, violence, disobedience to parents, 
and so on that are prevalent in our world due to God's truths being exchanged for lies, for man's lies. And so then we came to chapter 2 and we saw man's definitions have no bearing on God's definitions. So we can call what we want to be true, true, but it has no bearing whatsoever on what God calls truth. In chapter 2, verse 2, we read, The judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And so we talked about how the judgment of God is a very real thing. It's not a, an invention of man to, to manipulate people or to, into tithing or into, um, you know, um, for different causes, but it's, it's just a real reality that a holy God has to deal with sin. And so when we get to, um, we moving on through Romans 2, we see that it's not just those that were labeled in chapter 1, the, the, maybe the more um, vile sins or the more things like murder and, and so on that we think of when we think of sin, but he talks about those are also lost who are resting in the law. And those were his words as well, resting in their works. And, um, and so he says, but, you know, if, you, if you're sitting here and you're trusting in your own righteousness to please a holy God, I have news for you. You are also guilty before God. And so there is definitely this shift that happens in chapter 2 where um, there is the spotlight. It's a combined audience of Jews and Gentiles, but the spotlight kind of shifts onto definitely the Jews of Paul's day themselves. And it's as though Paul's saying to them, don't get too comfortable that you're not wallowing in debauchery like maybe you think of the, the Gentiles as doing. You are just as lost as your Gentile counterparts. And if your hope of eternal life um, is wrapped up in your you know, scrupulous attendance to the law or to the commandments of God, then you're just as lost. And so by the time we get to chapter 3, he has shown that the heathen are lost, the self-righteous moralists are lost, whether Jews or Gentiles, and he's dealt with their excuses at the beginning of chapter 3 last week, some of the, their arguments back to him um, in those first eight verses. And so now in our passage today, Paul is going to be speaking universally once again, um, that all are lost, stating emphatically that all are hopelessly sinful and, um, and doomed, really, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you might say, actually, by the time we get to our passage today, that, um, you know, isn't Paul beating a dead horse at this point? He's, he's talked about the worst of sinners. He's talked about those who think they're great. And the reality is, you know, even they are lost. And so um, when we, as you see, you're, you're about to see the verses we're going to read, they're just really, they're hard, um, they're in your face over and over and over again, stating with a, from a bunch of different perspectives the reality that we're sinners. And so you're like, isn't Paul kind of beating a dead horse? But um, the reality is, I think God knows that um, probably a dead horse has more common sense than most men do. And so it takes, it takes a lot to convince our proud hearts that, yes, I am to a sinner in need of salvation. And so it's about to be spelled out really in painstaking detail because it's clear that God really doesn't want us to miss this point. Um, 
there's things that maybe you can never read about in the Bible. There are truths that are there, and, and you know if you miss it, that's okay. But this is a truth you can't miss. That you, uh, and so God is making sure that we see this, and he wants everyone, each individual, to recognize it. And the reason for this is a person, um, a person, if you think of somebody that's drowning, uh, they only know to grab that rescue float if they realize that they're drowning. Um, and so you have to realize that you're lost and drowning in order to grab the, the rescue float. And so that's really the idea, I think, that's coming through here in, as we read these verses. Um, and so please don't go home today without um, missing this fact that the following 12 verses we're going to read, they're not meant to belittle you. They're not meant to, um, as a taunt from God of, look how good I am and just how terrible you are. This isn't God venting or grumbling about his creation, how dysfunctional it is. Um, this is God desperately trying to get our attention, your attention. Um, the attention of a world that's on a conveyor belt, um, as we're about to see, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the, we're, it's like the whole world is on this conveyor belt to to judgment and condemnation unless they receive the free gift of salvation from Jesus Christ. And so um, that is the heart of Paul and ultimately the heart of our God coming through as we read this section. And so without further ado, let's read chapter 3 starting in verse 9 and ending in verse 20. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved that both Jews and Gentiles, they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that the things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you that we have, um, that we have the word of God before us. And Father, we thank you that, um, that you are a merciful and gracious Father, as we were just singing, wonderful grace of Jesus, reaching the most defiled by its transforming power, making him God's dear child. Lord, we are so thankful. As we read these verses, we see that, um, that not a single one of us is able to please you on our own. And so, Father, we thank you that in love you have provided a Savior 
But Lord, as we consider these verses this morning, we just pray that your truths would be impressed on our hearts, um, that you would help us to agree with you on these things and to ask you to be open to what you would say to us, Lord, we pray. Um, we do this praying for the glory and honor of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, we just read verse 9 through 20, and this is really, um, you could call it just the bad news. And um, we're, next week I have the privilege of sharing as well the, the rest of the chapter, which if you want to come back for that, that is the good news. And we will try to sprinkle the good news in because it's hard to just get all the bad news at once. But, um, but this is a very sobering message that every individual needs to um, consider for themselves. And so just breaking it out, even though we, it seemed like Paul was saying very similar things over and over, um, I've tried to break it out in five different sections here. The first is verse 9, and that is that all are under sin. All are under sin. And then second, verse 10 through 11, we are inwardly sinful. Verse 12 through 17, we are outwardly sinful. Verse 18, we are Godwardly sinful. I did make up a word, but um, I think it'll make more sense when we get there. We are Godwardly sinful and we are hopelessly sinful, verse 19 and 20. And so starting here with verse 9, all are under sin is how that verse closed. What does under sin mean? What does that, is it like, are you up there, sin? Like, what does under sin mean? Uh, Romans seven fourteen. Paul, this is a phrase Paul says, and no need to turn there, but it says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. So Paul says, I am carnal, sold under sin. That, ask a, that begs a question, who sold us to sin? And we'll answer that in a moment. Uh, Galatians 3.22, Paul spoke, the scripture has concluded all under sin. Okay, so it's a phrase that he uses um, quite frequently. And so mankind is under sin. How? Were we created this way? No. When we read Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of the Bible, we see that man was created to have dominion over animals, over plants, we read that these were all created for us, for our pleasure, for our use. And so in the beginning of scripture, when God is detailing his creation to the world, um, in Genesis 1, there's lots of mention of things that man is over, and there's no mention to any power or influence that he is under. And um, in verse, well, then we, we also know that there was only one opportunity at the very beginning for man to sin. Um, in the beginning, we read in Genesis 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, out of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So we know that they were over creation. We know that there was really only one thing that had to do with sin that they were told about, like, don't do this. And, um, and so uh, most here probably know what happened, right? They took that forbidden fruit and um, as Paul later puts it in Romans, and that we actually read some of these verses in the first meeting, 
Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so we read that through one man, that's referring back to Adam, through Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And not only sin and death, but in verse 18 of Romans 5, through one man's offense or sin, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. And so when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, eating the forbidden fruit, they sold themselves, as it were, to sin. Their offspring and all humanity since has likewise been under or subject to sin and the death, judgment, and condemnation that must accompany that. And so when Adam and Eve took the, the fruit God had forbidden them, sin entered the world as a spiritual power and authority um, and became a master over mankind. And so the first evidence of this, again, referring back to Genesis, the first evidence of this is physical death. So now Adam and Eve would no longer live forever. They, um, God had told them, the day you do this, you will die. And so physical death became a reality for humans. And then we also know that there are other consequences. It was um, thorns. Uh, God said to man, you'll toil the ground, and, like till the ground with thorns, and it's going to be toilsome, hard work to, to till the ground. And, and likewise to Eve, he said, in pain, you will bear children. And so there's these, um, these immediate consequences to the spiritual authority and power that entered um, the world uh, upon their sin. And so these immediate concerns, though, aren't, there, aren't the only really concern. Um, being under sin meant that now mankind is also under God's judgment and condemnation, right? And so when they die, if left in their current state, they face God as a judge. A scary proposition. And so Paul opens this section personifying sin as a master and humans as its subject. And so this same idea is found in Matthew 8, 9. You might think of this too. Um, when the Roman centurion was speaking to Christ, um, he was speaking to Christ and he says, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Now listen to his description of what this means. I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. So this is the idea of being under sin as a master. Sin says go, and we go. It says come, and we come. Do this, and we do it. And we know that, uh, most know that to be a reality in their life, uh, most that acknowledge what's true in all of us. And so this word under means that the one over is essentially has his way with you, has ownership and control over you. And this is the relationship between humankind and sin that Paul is describing. And so this is an important point to remember because in order for God to claim ownership of us, you know, and to offer us everlasting life, to be in his holy pre presence, we would have to somehow be released from the ownership of sin in a way that is legal to God, um, that is correct or right in the eyes of God's perfect standards of holiness and justice. And so this is why next week we'll get to the good news portion. You're going to read specific language that says that God has redeemed us 
or ransomed us. And that's because we were under mastery to sin and we needed to be, there needed to be a legal exchange that happens in order to buy us out from that, um, that bondage. And so it's described as redemption and ransom in scripture. And so the actions that God took on our behalf to save us, the, the price he paid to buy us out of slavery. So verse 9 is we are all under sin. And then verse 10 through 11, um, we see that we are inwardly sinful. It begins with this quote, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so we see that we're not just under sin's ownership, like a, like a slave master relationship, but we're actually, sin's DNA is within us now. There is a nature within us that sins, that wants to sin. And so it's not just that we have this cruel taskmaster, we're also inwardly sinful. And so in this section, beginning in verse 10 and 11, Paul is actually quoting David from Psalm chapter 14. We won't read it for the sake of time, but virtually word for word quoting David, that none is righteous, meaning none is perfectly equitable, none is holy, none is innocent, not even one. Think about that. And still, despite God's word saying this so clearly, mankind is largely ignorant of the gravity of his problem and of how guilty we really are before God. And so as such, we read in verse 11, none seek after God. Even though we are all guilty, it says none seek after God. It is not in any of our nature to seek God for salvation. It's only by God's spirit drawing men, women, boys and girls to himself that any of us have ever searched for God. And so is Paul just describing the people in his current day? Like was society just kind of lousy at that point? But no, we, um, we already mentioned that he was quoting David. So David had similar things to say in the Psalms um, hundreds of years earlier. And then even predating David, um, listening to God's comment, listen to God's commentary, um, also going back to Genesis, Genesis 6 verse 5, this is right before Noah's ark and the flood. Listen to God's sentiment or statement about man. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. This has been a problem for a very long time, a problem dating back like we started with to the garden when they took that fruit in disobedience. But you might say, you know, that doesn't sound right. Like, I, I know my thoughts and I know, yeah, some aren't the best, but I know that it's not always wicked continually. I'm not constantly thinking bad thoughts or, um, I would just suggest to you though, this is because we don't understand God's holiness. Um, we don't understand what the thinking of one perfectly holy is. And so our standard for morality is based on our own experiences and our own understanding. But does that qualify us to doubt God's statement that there is none righteous, that, um, that every intention of the thought of the heart is wicked continually? Um, are we in the right place to question him on that? 
as an example that maybe this is like a child, um, you know, coming up to his father and, and saying, I am a good engineer after designing his own Lego creation and proudly displaying it to his father, who's an aerospace engineer. And that boy has no clue, right? The sophistication of science or mathematical uh, mastery that distinguishes a, a good scientist from a novice scientist or good engineer from a novice engineer. But likewise, that aerospace engineer, he can't hold a candle to the almighty engineer of the universe who hung galaxies, planets, stars in perfect balance, not to mention who created these sophisticated bodies and plant life and climate system, and we could go on and on. And so there is just, we're not able to, to keep up with God's um, understanding. And so when we come to things like this where it's just hard to understand as humans, you know, is every thought of my heart wicked continually? Well, in contrast to God's perfection of holiness, it is. And, and that's just um, a fact that we have to embrace. And so um, my question to each one here this morning is, do you agree with God on this? Um, do you agree with God that you are under sin and that there is none good? There is, there is no other way of interpreting the scripture. Um, this is unmistakable language with unmistakable consequences. And so um, what does inward sinfulness look like? We know what external sinfulness looks like. We have a pretty good idea what murder and, and things like that look like. But inward sinfulness, it can be more subtle, can it? And it can be often cloaked as amoral or as even moral. Um, but in fact, it's still a heart that is bent against God. And so that's th this is, we're talking about maybe things like pride, uh, selfishness, greed, jealousy, covetousness, lust, refusing to forgive, um, wishing evil on someone. Inward, we're inwardly sinful people, aren't we? Um, if you're honest with yourself, you've experienced the rage that you know, can quickly well up within you um, when somebody you know, says something or looks at you the wrong way, or um, the jealousy or the stewing over something that somebody that didn't treat you with respect. You know, the lustful thought, the delight in somebody's humiliation, these come naturally from within us. And so verse 10 and 11 here establish that we are inwardly sinful. And then certainly we are also outwardly sinful. Verse 12 through 17, we read, they have all gone out of the way, um, is how the King James puts that, or um, I think the ESV says, they have all turned aside, it means to deviate, to avoid. And so to say that all have gone out of the way kind of begs another question, doesn't it? Well, what is the way? Um, to say that you have gone out of the way, um, what is that way anyways? And I'm just going to quote a few verses here. Um, you can jot them down and look at them later. It's a kind of a neat path to think about. But the first one is Proverbs 14, 12. Um, because scripture has a lot to say about, quote, the way. And so Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way of death. And so what exactly is this way of man? Isaiah 53, verse 6 reads, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. 
And so there is a way that seems right to a man, and it's the way of death, we're told. It's also his own way. It's the natural, personal choice to, to do what seems right to me, and yet the Lord's, or God's word says that it is a way of death. And as such, it is a futile way. First, or Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. He says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Again, that word ransom, the idea that God had to buy us away um, from our master, from sin as a master. And so we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. And so, it, but Peter talks about it as a futile way. And so what exactly is God's way? Well, that's a question one of Jesus' disciples asked him, Thomas. Thomas said, how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so how good is this way? It is so good Jesus' way is so good that we are welcomed into the most holy of places um, to be with him forever and ever. And how do we know that? Um, Hebrews 10, 19 and 20, we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us. And so scripture, yes, scripture has much to say about man's way versus God's way. Man's way leads man to destruction. Um, but God's way leads man to everlasting life. Um, so all have gone out of the way, though. And we read in verse 12, or the second half of verse 12, that um, there is none who does good, no, not one. We can't, the, the language can't get clearer, can it? And so it really comes down to a decision. Will we agree with God on this? Uh, verse 13 and 14 uh, we see um, continuing here on outwardly sinful. Now Paul starts to describe it using the human person. And so he starts with the head and then he's going to talk end with the, um, the feet or the paths that we're on. And so starting with the head here, we see that he mentions the, um, our mouths, really. Mouths of death. He says, um, lost my spot here, verse 13, their throat is an open sepulcher. Not a pleasant description of our throats. And so the throat and open grave, tongues that deceive, poison under our lips. And so these are also all quotations from the Psalms. Psalm 5, verse 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, Psalm 10, 7. Again, no new thoughts that Paul is bringing up here. Things that, that other godly men even um, spaced apart by much time um, were of the same impression from the Holy Spirit. And so we also saw Jesus talking this way. Matthew 12, 34, he referred to man's mouth. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so um, I'm sure some of you have seen this too, but I'm surprised and I actually don't have to look past myself, but you, we notice these things in other people more quickly than we do ourselves. Um, there can be people that are often very pleasant and largely seem to be what most would call good people. And yet when something gets to them, when something bad happens, it could be something as trivial as, you know, they, they sack your quarterback in a football game that you're cheering for, but such profanity just slips out of the mouth, right? And so, um, 
In fact, aren't the words out of our mouths often, even before we know what we're saying? Like, isn't it often that you're just like, did I just say that? And I didn't intentionally try to say that sometimes. And yet it's just there. And so where is that coming from? Well, it's coming from the sinful nature within us, the nature that each of us share. And so that's why he's talking about um, the mouth, the throat. It's a good way for people to agree with God and be like, yeah, yeah, I, my mouth has been a grave sometimes. Well, it, it is a grave. It's a, um, there is nothing good that we are able to, um, that comes out of it naturally. And so, um, and then verse 15 and 17, he talks about the mouth, and then verse 15 to 17, he addresses our feet that lead us to violence, leaving ruin and misery in our rear view mirror. Um, again, the futile way that all we like sheep have strayed to. It's so, Paul has essentially outlined for us that from head to toes, we are sinful. Uh, we are hopelessly sinful. And then we see in verse 18 that we are Godwardly sinful. And this is the phrase, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So it's not just that, we're, that we sin against other people. It's also that we sin against God. And so there is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no concerns about what pleases God um, that is in any of us naturally. And so what does this mean? No fear of God before our eyes. It means that we blatantly will contradict God. Um, we'll blatantly relabel things as good or as true that God has called false or evil. And, and so, for instance, God says in Genesis 1.1, the very first verse of Scripture, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But mankind will say, the world says, in the beginning, some random rogue particles collided to become something as complex and incredible as our universe, right? And so this is presented as scientific fact. And the idea of an intelligent designer is presented as a primitive way of thinking. Um, another example, Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Male and female, he created them. No distinctions in God's eyes between sex and gender. And yet, um, you see this everywhere, right? And I'm just going to read a few of these. The World Health Organization states that gender identity refers to how a person feels about their gender and does not need to correspond to their actual physiology at birth, what they were born as. In other words, you get to decide who you are, not God. This is these are examples that there is no fear of God within us by nature. The CDC, you know, we look to them for science to lead us in scientific thinking. Um, the CDC defines gender as an individual sense of their self, as a man, woman, transgender, and then get this, in quotes, or something else. That's their wording on their site. And and then a medical journal I was reading, um, it said this at the conclusion where it's talking to, to an individual of how to help you understand what gender you are. He says, keep in mind that there is no need for any specific label. You might want to go without a label or even create your own. And so um, 
this isn't to make fun of people, right? Because this is our hearts. Like, we'll go to any lengths to say, God, you're wrong. Or, God, I get to decide. And, um, and so the reason I'm saying these is that young people often think that science is the world's position and that faith is the church's position. And then they often say, you know, I, I should probably err with science, right? And, and yet you can see by even just, you can go on these websites and this is like the language they're using is not scientific often in, on a lot of things. And so just know that there's another spirit that's in this world that's influencing the way the world thinks. And that's that master of sin. And so <clears throat> moving on here, we can, there's so many, we could look at marriage. God says marriage is between a man and a woman. On Genesis 2.24, so, so shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife. But the world says it's okay for a man to have a husband or a woman to have a wife. Um, and so, again, there is, it's just, uh, we're bent in our natures against God. Marriage is honorable above all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge, Hebrews 13.4. But the world says you need to try before you buy. Premarital sex, pornography, all that goes along with that. And the earlier you start experimenting, the better off you are. This is the world's thinking, the world's message to children. It's, um, and it's showing that there's no fear of God before our eyes. God says, Leviticus 19.11, you shall not lie. God, Psalm 51, 6, David said, you desire truth in the inmost being. But the world says everyone does it. It's called a little white lie, right? It does, if it doesn't hurt anyone, it's okay. If the system is broken, you basically have no choice but to lie. We could go on and on, but these all point to one reality, that there is no fear of God before our eyes. By nature, we are our own self-appointed gods. That's what we do. We decide what's right and wrong for me. And that's, you hear that. Do You do you. Um, that's the philosophy of the world. And so we are Godwardly sinful. And so our last section here, um, verse 19 to 20. I'll just read these once again. Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So Paul clarifies the purpose of laws. God's laws do not exist to make arbitrary hurdles for us to cross, or to create sin, rather they exist to create an awareness, um, to create an accountability, and to facilitate judicial dealings with sin. And so, you know, a confident teenager, teenage driver might say, well, if there were no speed limits, um, it wouldn't be wrong to race my buddies down the highway. Uh, but it would still be wrong, wouldn't it? So my point is, well, it would still be wrong because it's still causing danger to those around you um, out of your own uh, pursuit of a thrill. And so the reason of saying this is that God didn't make, sin isn't sin because of the existence of laws, um, but rather um, these laws exist to help us understand um, 
that we are sinners. God says that his laws aren't to prove one's innocence. We're not to use the do's and don'ts of scripture to prove our innocence to God um, or to even stop sin from happening, but simply to stop our mouths, to stop our excuses. The laws are here to make everyone be quiet before God, to make us realize and admit our guilt and to plea for mercy. And so any parent out there knows what this means. Um, it is so frustrating listening to a child, you know, spew their excuses about why they did what they did or said what they said. Um, listening to someone justify their actions is incredibly exhausting and, and frustrating. Um, but this is exactly what we do to God in our hearts. Um, we, we, we excuse our sin, right? And so the law effectively shushes every man's mouth. You either did it or you didn't. And his laws are intended to show man's guilt, not to keep men from being guilty. And so God already knew our guilt without laws, but showing man his guilt by using laws was an act of mercy from God um, to clue us into our need for a savior. Um, and so if you are undecided about God, I would imagine um, this message is challenging to you. Um, not only because of what it's claiming to be true about you, about society, um, it's true about me, by the way, um, but it is claiming that things celebrated as progress in our society is actually wicked, you know. Um, but what's more, despite God's word being so clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, despite our own consciences, even bear witness to the fact that at least that, yes, I'm not perfect. Uh, we can at least um, admit that much to God. Um, Romans 2 that we, uh, that we covered in previous weeks reminded us that there's still a lot of people that are resting in their works. They're still trusting that, you know, um, God is, I, I believe God is going to give me a pass or he's going to say it's like you're good enough um, and that I can earn his favor and and so when you ask somebody why they think they'll be in heaven, most often the response you get, it, they don't mention anything about Jesus's righteousness or about his free gift of salvation. It's usually things like, you know, I've been a pretty good person or I've paid it forward or I was baptized as a child or I go to church every Sunday or I'm, I'm hoping God will say you weren't that bad of a guy is what you usually hear. And so... You must agree that today's passage, though, in God's word, uses unmistakable language, doesn't it? Like recording that all humanity is universally, unequivocally, through and through, head to toe, unfit for his presence. Do you agree with God that he is offering you his righteousness as a free gift? as Paul told his audience um, right out of the gate in this book. He says, this is the gospel um, that the righteousness of God is revealed. This is the good news. God's righteousness is revealed and it is offered as a free gift because of Jesus's sacrifice in our place. So we just must know, you must know sitting here today that God will not listen to your excuses. He is a righteous and a holy judge. Uh, when we find ourselves standing before him one day, as everyone will, 
we will either have received his free gift or we will have dismissed it. There is no in between. Um, whether you are a man, woman, boy, or girl, no matter what you have done, you can be free from sin as your master, from death and judgment and condemnation as your destiny. Uh, will you receive this free gift of salvation today? Um, I asked Ellie if maybe we could sing number 306 in the Red Book in closing. Number 306, and we'll sing the, um, the first two and the last two verses. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am in waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. This can be the prayer of your heart today. If you haven't yet put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, um, will you come to him today? Let's sing number 306.